This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Well, welcome everybody, everybody that's here, everybody that's here for the first time, everybody that's here for the nth time or even the nth squared time. And welcome everybody in the, um, you know, vast and mysterious online community. Um, I'm really indescribably grateful to be here giving this talk. So thank you. Mm. Nonetheless, it's worth asking, you know, um, why are we here? Um, and I don't mean that in the, you know, in the large sense of the word, why are we here? I mean that in the specific um, sort of medium range sense of the phrase, why are we here? Um, <clears throat> why is there a Zen Buddhist temple in the middle of San Francisco? that invites people to come um, on Saturdays and, and listen to someone talk about um, a arguably 25-year-old, 2,500-year-old um, religious and philosophical tradition. It's an excellent question. Um, and, So to start with, um, there's, you know, the problem, right? Which is that 2,500 years ago, you know, as today and as for, for the entire intervening period, things are and have been a mess and, and people and other beings have been suffering for it, um, sometimes subtly and sometimes horrifically and extravagantly. And probably everyone has seen the, the Casey Green, this is fine dog cartoon, right? Um, uh, an amazing percentage of those people that have been um, suffering over the years, I'm, I'm not totally clear to me, it's a majority, but certainly a large plurality are kind of like the dog, you know, they're sitting in a burning house and with a cup of coffee. I, my understanding is that the, the original cartoon was just two frames, right? There was and a lot of frames have been added on over the course of the intervening 10 years. But the two frames are dog sitting in a burning house with a cup of coffee. Dog takes a drink and says, this is fine. <laughs> ah, yeah. Um, or to 
put it more poetically in, in a in a slightly more Buddhist context. There's this famous koan. It's um, the twenty eighth koan or case in uh, uh, Book of Serenity, which is one of the large collections of these stories about interactions between teachers and students or students and students and occasionally things that are way off in left field. But in any case, this one, there's this teacher named Hu Guo and uh, a monk asks him, so how is it when a crane sits in a, in a withered pine? And, you know, he sets up this beautiful image, right? Like you can imagine a hilltop. I've, I've just been, uh, spent much of last week um, riding my bike in central California all by myself in the absolute middle of nowhere, you know, like these beautiful kind of weathered trees with birds sitting in them. I, I, I don't know how many red-tailed hawks I startled out of, out of their reverie, right? But um, so you imagine a crane, you know, perched in a, in a withered pine on a hilltop and, and Hugo says, down there on the ground and underneath, it's a mess. <laughs> and then the monk says, "Okay, well, what about um, what about when a when a drop of water is a drop of ice?" And um, and Hugo says, "Oh, well, you know, when the sun comes out, it's a mess." And then he asks the the real question. He says, "Okay, what about during the uh, the you know?" Buddhist purge in the in the middle of the Tang Dynasty. We can talk about that a little in a, in a moment. He says, um, "What what happened with the with the spirits that were intended to you know guard the the teachings?" And he says, "Well, it was really a, a, it was really a, an embarrassment for the two guys at the gate, right?" So the there's a couple of things there. One is. Um, that in the middle of the Tang Dynasty, there was this horrible political upheaval. And at the end of it, the Tang Emperor was like, okay, we need to, one, wipe out foreign influences on Chinese culture. And two, we need to um, rake back some uh, cash and, 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 uh, and people from the monastic system. And so he, they essentially canceled uh, Buddhist monasteries. Um, all over China, and um, and you can imagine, like you know, in the so the you, you can imagine a, a, a East Asian Buddhist monastery. They almost always have these really powerful and imposing guardian figures at the gate, right? So there's there, and often they're standing there, and one of them is going like, and the other one is going like this and they're one one of the things they're doing is they're breathing but the other thing they're doing is they're 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 essentially trying to scare away all the um you know uh interferers disruptors and detractors right and and uh and you can imagine these these guys standing there you know doing their thing and and a whole mob runs in and kicks all the monks out and and uh and and they're like Whoa, what just happened? <laughs> so anyway, um kind of a kind of a mess, right? Um but 
again, it's like, things are kind of a disaster and people break themselves into believing not necessarily all that things are okay. I mean, the funny thing is that, that people have a wide variety of, of responses to, to human life and the world and so on. Um, but if you, if you kind of poke around like, you know, the internet, for example, and, you know, and, or maybe read the comments page on the pages on the New York times or something like that, you get the feeling that even the people, the people that think things are going horribly and they're sitting there at their, um, at their, you know, at their table in the, um, in, in the house with their cup of coffee and go, Oh my God, the house is burning down. They still kind of have this idea that they, they uniquely understand what's going on. And, um, even if they don't know what to do about it, um, are are really willing to um, cling to their sort of dream of special understanding and control, right? Um, which is amazing under the circumstances. Um, so that's the problem. We we make a mess of things. We suffer, and we're deluded about our understanding and control of the mess. Del, you know, self-deluding about the understanding, our understanding and control of the mess, about the nature of the mess. Um, and the, so the Buddhist proposition, again, you know, roughly 2,500 years ago, um, around that was something like this. Um, we don't actually know in any detail what the life of Buddha was like or what, what he actually taught. But what we do have is we have this, this long record of stories about his life and stories about stuff that he said. Um, and it doesn't matter view that. You could view it as history. You could view it as, as philosophy. You could view it as mythology, however you want to do it. And there's scholars all over the world that, that take all those points of view, right? What, what those stories bring to the fore, um, and not everyone completely agrees with, with this, but certainly the, the, um, with the establishment of the Zen school in Japan, the, the guy that established the Zen school in Japan said essentially what I'm saying to you now, which is, um, hey, the Buddha thought this because I read the stories or heard the stories. And and here's what I'm telling you. Here's how it works. And, and here's what he said. He basically said, what you do is you engage in a lifetime program of mindful self-study um, framed by heartfelt vows to live an exemplary life and avoid harming self and others, right? That's kind of the, you know, that's the summing up there. Um, and the, the, he he's you know 
he said it more poetically than I just did, but um, but that's but you read if you read the the, the you know so Zen is a is a Mahayana Buddhist school, but if you read the the Theravadan canon, it says more or less the same thing. The the uh, a lot of the uh, the stories in the in the Pali canon are about you know the Buddha being asked you know how and why should we practice and he and he says the same thing he says if you engage in this this precept driven program of mindful self study it it um, it well among other things makes you better at living and also um, uh, is transformative and palliative by turns. So essentially, they're, they're recommending introspection, right? A, a program of, of, of introspection. And these days, I would say from a philosophical perspective, introspection kind of gets a bad rap. Like, I don't know if any, any of you have read Daniel Dennett, for example, but he has a lot to say about how um, how ineffective introspection is as a way of understanding the world, right? And he has some pretty specific reasons for this. And the interesting thing is that over the course of millennia, the Buddhists have also discovered these things, <laughs> the ways in which introspection can be, it can be problematic. I mean, the, and the, the obvious ways in which introspection um, is a complicated tool to use, um, kind of go like this. Um, one is, obviously, we have a limited view, right? Each of us has a unique perspective on the world that, um, that arises out of our, you know, our location, our time, our cultural placement, our um, and our our specific lived experience and the conditioning that arises from it, and we see everybody sees the world in a in a unique way, and also let's be clear, a limited way, right? Because it's limited by exactly that conditioning um, and by that placement um, in space and time. And um, we've probably talked about this ad nauseum in this context, but. Um, there's this wonderful talk by Richard Feynman about um, about this this exact phenomenon, um, where he he basically I, I I won't go into the whole talk. It's it's great because he imagines he has you imagine a spider standing on the surface of a swimming pool in order to to um, to get at this as a you know kind of as a metaphor, right? But um, his basic point is this: you're sitting here and you're thinking, "Wow, I'm taking in the world." <laughs> right? 
but actually um, through your body are coursing vast energies that that come from the farthest corners of the universe and you know and radio signals that you can't hear and and uh and you know the the gravitational waves that result from the death of of quasars and i mean it's just you know we have a really limited scope <laughs> in terms of what we can what we can see and our and our ability to to you know he talks about the spider floating on the surface of the swimming pool and figuring out from the the shape of the waves whether it's just a little breeze blowing across the surface of the swimming pool or whether jimmy has just done a cannonball right um uh, and and we're pretty proud of our ability to you know take in the waves that we can actually take in and 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 make up a model for the world but it's nothing compared to the actual complexity and ungraspable marvel of the universe, even the universe in this little tiny space right here, right? Um, and um, and so we have we have a very limited view, and it leads to um, limited ideas about how things are, about reality, right? And and the and the the fundamental nature of reality. Even Feynman, the physicist, in, in, at the end of this talk says something like, he, he calls it the ungraspable nature of nature. Wonderful, right? Um, so that's, that's thing one. <laughs> um, thing two is that, um, we have a tendency to be self-deluding and we'll get into a little bit of how this actually works later but but we we're constantly tricking ourselves about what we see and what we uh what we hear and so on and so forth and um we take in a fair amount of information and we we throw away the vast majority of it immediately without even sent, without even perceiving it right and then um, hammer what we got into a frame that we've preconceived and said, and we say, okay, this is what's happening now. Right? But it, but if you you know, there's a there's a whole bunch of famous experiments that expose exactly the limits of this sort of thing. Like the the one I was reading about today, there's a debate between Dennett and this other philosopher that mentions this experiment where essentially you take a playing card. You hold it out here and you keep your field of view. You, we think of our visual field as being full of fairly accurate representations of objects um, in our visual field, except maybe at the edges. We're willing to allow this a little bit of fuzziness at the edges, right? Because if you take a playing card, you hold it out here and you slowly swivel it into view. It's only right about here where you start being able to actually read the thing, right? We're our our the the notion that our visual field is an accurate representation of what's out there and we and we see it all clearly, it's an illusion that we cook up in order to um satisfy ourselves that we can get around in the world without bumping into things. That's what it's for. Um, and that 
other things are not going to come and bump into us like cars and so on. Um, and that intentional well necessary and and um and some and to a certain extent automatic but also intentional limiting of our our knowledge of and our interpretation of the world that we see you can see how that leads to all sorts of delusions about about the world right and and about the other beings in it and and so on and so forth and then worse than that we're kind of um prone to um in addition to the sort of standard forms of self-delusion we're also uh prone to delusions that arise out of ambition like it's okay for me to have this thing even though I'm taking it from this other person because, uh, you know, I don't know, because I invented this concept that makes it okay, right? It's okay for me to break the precepts in this way because um, I deserve it, right? And we're, And we tend in that way to also mess with our experience. Right? So um, one of the one of the problems defined, you know, as identified by Suzuki Roshi in writing Zen by Beginner's Mind is that you, you learn how to sit, you sit down and you start doing it, and almost immediately you you um, you find yourself thinking, you know. This is not the way it should be. It should be this other way, and I will make it be that way. <laughs> right? um, and uh, um, and and it, it can cause all sorts of, um, well, I mean, the the standard critique that's leveled at um, Zen practitioners is that they're engaged in in navel gazing, right? It, it promotes a kind of navel gazing, right? a kind of. Um, a kind of denial of the actual nature of of experience, um, and and a um, pursuit of, or even illusory attainment of another kind of experience that um, that we idealize, right? Mm. But all that said, even though introspective practice doesn't show us about reality and is prone to all these difficulties, right? Um, if we approach it in, in a particular way, it, what it can actually re reveal to us is the nature of experience the the to the extent that we're capable the the nature of this experience the experience of this one living their life moment by moment um and this mind producing 
thought and so on, moment by moment. And, and so realizing this about a little over 2000 years ago, um, the, the most, um, the best attested Buddhist school of the day, the Sarvastivadins, cooked up a scheme um, called the five skandhas, right? Which I don't know how many people were here today and who helped chant the Heart Sutra, but it kind of listed them in the in the context of the Heart Sutra. And they the skandhas translates usually as aggregates in the in English translations of the literature. There's a you know, really sort of talented Buddhist scholar by the name of Red Pine, who makes the point that it's actually not precise to say aggregates. He says it's more of a reference to, you can imagine a, a uh, mangrove forest with all these aerial roots all kind of sort of coming down and clustering and we're to the point where after a while you can't see the the forest for the roots, right? And that's kind of what Gandhas are referring to, according to Red Pond. And I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a lovely poetic image, right? Um, so they're kind of like the, it's a the scheme is is an intended as kind of a rubric for understanding human subjectivity and human experience, and um, and the 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 roots of that human experience and human subjectivity are they're, they're kind of a it's kind of a layered structure and so I'll just go through it right so there's the there's form the the realm of form which is to say the physical realm that includes our sensory hardware it includes teacups that contain water. Nice. Thank you. Um, and so on. And then pretty much all the other layers are fundamentally metaphysical. <laughs> so, you know, in that moment, I lifted the teacup and there was contact. There was a lot of contact. There was contact with my fingers, with the cup. There was, there was effort, there was, um, you know, some kind of, some sort of stored procedure for how to drink. And there was, you know, some water, amazing, right? It was pretty good, actually. But um, the, the point there is that out of that contact arises um, what we refer to usually in the context of the skandhas as sensation, right? And again, as I was saying earlier, we take it, we experience a lot of sensation all the time, like really, really a lot. If you, if you actually pay attention to your, your self as a sensate, for lack of a better word, machine, right? Um, it's it's telegraphing reams and reams of data every second um, around the system, it, around the 
the underlying network that supports it, right? Um, and, you know, we're all sitting here just bathing in sensation. There's cars going by, there's people talking. Um, everyone's probably got, you know, maybe a little discomfort in some joint or other because they've been sitting around, which reminds me, you should sit comfortably if you like. Um, if if you need to shift your posture, it's okay. You don't have to um, sit like the statue on the altar, although. <laughs> um, the statue on the altar looks makes it look good and easy, I think, right? Um, but anyway, um, we're bathing in this sensation and the the idea is the, the the additional idea that that the scheme presents is that that sensations are either pleasant or unpleasant or maybe neutral and maybe they also have a sort of a degree of excitation that arises around that sensation right and so um, so on the basis of those valences some sensations arise into the to the arise into perception and into and our 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 regi register with us right and 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 therefore um so that's the that's the second layer is the layer of perception um and at that point um we do some additional work right like the that dog, right? So there's dog out there parking. And I don't know about the rest of you, but what what occurs in my mind is an image of a dog about this big that kind of maybe is shaped like a miniature schnauzer. But for some reason, it's kind of cream colored and it's going arf, 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 arf. <laughs> it's like a cartoon dog, not the one in the, this is fine, um, but, but another dog, right? Um, and you know, probably everybody else has a different response to that. But the point is that once something arises to the level of of perception, then then memory is engaged, and pattern matching, and um, association. That we have a kind of associative, vast associative storehouse of memory, and and at very least, an explanation arises for the sensation. And sometimes um, uh, patterned responses are also um, dredged up, right? And, and then, and all of this um, transpires and impinges upon our consciousness, okay? So if you look at these layers, you got form, sensation, perception, kind of mental formation and, and, and you know, uh, maybe explanation, maybe volitional activity, and so on and so forth, and then consciousness. And you've got, so you've got a physical layer, right? You've got a metaphysical, you know, three metaphysical sort of and processual layers that that are pretty easy to understand, right? And you you have there are processes that transpire in in the physical substrate that cause these activities to take place, right? And then on top, there's awareness or consciousness. And, and that is like this 
miraculous mystery that nobody has a clue about. You know, the people have been trying to explain human consciousness for millennia, and we're really no closer to explaining it now than we were 2,500 years ago, right? It's, it's completely a mystery. And, and when I was studying neuroscience in grad school, um, when you'd raise the consciousness question, all of the, the, you know, the best, you know, professors of the day, but I'll say, we're not going to talk about that. Right? And we just really just put it down. Like you, we can't get into that because it's so, it's so mysterious and ungraspable that, that um, we're just going to tie ourselves in knots and shoot each other in the foot basically. Um, and um that's still mostly the case, but every now and again, I run across a book where somebody says, well, if we're going to try and explain it, this is how we might want to start, right? But, but honestly, it's, it's still just this grand mystery and, and, and kind of a miracle and, and an indescribable gift that sometime during the course of the evolutionary history of life on the planet, probably hundreds of millions of years ago, way before humans, some some evolutionary process decided that things would go better for the the you know the beasts that it was evolving if they were at least a little bit self-aware right ah, amazing ah. and when you study that, and, and you know, I, I guess my point, I guess my final point about the skandhas is that as a scheme for talking about and thinking about and, and sort of understanding experience in general and the experience of practice in particular, it's about as good as anything anyone's ever come up with, right? And if you study it, what you notice is, is this, right? You have this, you have this consciousness, um, this awareness, and embedded in that awareness are several modes of attention, more than two, um, but two really, two really obvious ones, right? And the first one is a kind of a broad, fundamentally kind of unloaded receptive attention right? um, that that naturally and seamlessly trades place with a kind of focus of attention, focused attention, when, when a perception arises and draws your attention, right? So, um, you know, truck slowing down, car with, uh, with you know, pounding music, um, uh, a sense, you know, sensation in my right knee, um, uh, and, and also this, the, the scheme of the skandhas, in addition to identifying the five um, realms of the senses, also includes at the same level and in almost, you know, with using the same language, um, mental activity, the generation of thoughts, the generation of images, and, and so on, right? So, so um, in principle, we have this broad container of awareness and receptive attention that gives focused attention to a particular sensation or thought 
and then lets it go and then does it again. And you can, you can watch yourself do this um, in sitting Zazen all the live long day. It's, it's actually kind of great. And for the most part, um, it, it kind of works like a champ, but, but what happens is the following, right? Um, eventually a thought arises that has enough um, sort of emotional juice associated with it or and is, is intriguing or compelling. And by eventually, I usually, I mean like usually within 10 or 15 seconds, right? Um, uh, that it draws your attention and it, your mind slips into this, the, the third mode, uh, which is a, which is a special case of the, of focused attention, which is our mode of, um, of sort of self-narration, self-construction, ruminative thinking, and so on. And as far as I can tell, and this is mostly just anecdotal stuff and things that I've observed from, you know, raising a bunch of children, is that, you know, when kids are somewhere between one and two, they have a realization, my, my, uh, a now adult daughter told me about this revelation once when she was again about one and a half or something like that. She goes, you know, I discovered today that I can talk to myself without talking out loud. She'd already learned how to talk. And now she all of a sudden could talk to herself in secret, right? And she could start building this narrative of the self and these ideas about the self and so on and so forth. And, you know, she's been building them ever since. <laughs> and she's now, what, 33 or something like that. And she's a college professor. <laughs> but, but, and we all, I think we all do that. We, th that mode, the mode of self-construction, self-narration, um, thinking about what we're going to say, thinking about what we said, thinking about what we're, what we're going to do, thinking about, um, what we're not going to do, et, et cetera, all of that, all of that stuff rises up and becomes really the center of our attention. And I think in the neuroscience world, they even call that the default mode <laughs> that, that when you, when you sort of slip back, when you, when you're, when you're engaged in say a task, maybe your intention can be entirely drawn by that task. But if you let go you have a you perhaps have a brief moment when you're in this sort of um, you know state of broad receptive attention, and then something comes up and you're like, okay. And the interesting thing is that there's pretty broad agreement if you read books about practice that that transition from receptive attention to um, self construction is practically impossible to watch right it's like the there's this weird thing that happens where all of a sudden your that other mode says oh no you should be paying attention to this and it it gets out some sort of eraser and erases the context and all of a sudden you're in you're thinking right um and that makes it that makes it difficult to work with but but again, what you discover is that over time with practice, you discover that everybody has this sort of cycle of attention where you're present, 
and then you're tangled up in ruminative thinking. And then that not long after, and again, tens of seconds, maybe minutes, um, uh, something occurs where, where you're impelled to broaden your, your attention and be present again, right? And um, at that point, nothing is hidden, right? You can see the thought, you can see the emotions, you can see the, um, et cetera. You're, you're present and, 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 and the, the contents of your experience as a human is, is on display. It's accessible, right? And to, so to learn to, to practice, and, and again, this is, this is the essence of the program of mindful self-study, is to essentially surf that cycle of attention and, and rest in the moments when, when you're actually present and make, and really make the most of them, right? Really be there, right? Really make this subtle effort to inhabit the body and mind that's present in that moment, right? And if to if to if anything to bring up a kind of curiosity about it. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge. And this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.